there is a quality bias that um, that has overtaken a lot of the desires for investors. And so the reason we suspect that's happening is there's a fear that, you know, given this historical rate hiking cycle around the world, there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously. To hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Pushkin. At the end of 2023, U.S. markets hit a big milestone. Passive investing, where you take your money and you shove it in the market and you do just about nothing with it, for the first time ever exceeded active investing. That's according to data from Morningstar. This is a big change. And as some market watchers worried, are markets really markets if everyone is just buying the index? This is Unhedged, the Markets and Finance show from the Financial Times and Pushkin. I'm reporter Ethan Wu here in the New York studio, joined from London by markets columnist Katie Martin, who loves complaining about passive investing. Isn't that right? <laughs> I don't love complaining about it. I don't want to get any more emails about this. <laughs> but it's it's interesting. One of the most interesting topics in markets. It's very controversial, as you alluded to. And your piece on this last month, Katie, generated... I'm looking right now, 329 FT readers with something to say, and I'm sure a boatload more emails. Yes. If you want to annoy people or get them very kind of excited and feeling righteous about things, then my advice to you is write about passive investment. (laughs) Well, let's just take it back to basics for a second. I mean, I think people may know this, but it took decades and decades for kind of the collective wisdom of the markets to be that active investing for the most part in the long term on average sucks, that most people can't beat the index on a consistent basis. Uh, And you see kind of over time funds bleeding out of of old stalwart active managers like, you know, the Franklin Templetons of the world and and, and heading into these Mm. S&P 500 or other equity index trackers. This is a long running story and it's moved very slowly, but we're now kind of reaching critical mass. And as markets have shifted in that direction from active to passive You've heard a kind of growing crop of concern about what it might do to markets themselves. And so maybe yeah. just talk a bit about that, Katie. What is the problem with just a lot of people owning the market? So the, there's a couple of things. Um, passive investment is still a bit of a bogeyman for people who, for whatever reason, just hate it. Yeah. <laughs> Largely because <laughs> often it's like if you're an active manager who's out there kind of picking stocks, then passive investment is just eating your lunch. And so... A lot of people who do pick stocks for a living or do really kind of sophisticated investment strategies will tell you that the reason their strategies are not working is because of, because of passive. There's a lot of whinging about passive and how it's, you know, not fair and, and this kind of isn't how the game is supposed to work. And it's just one of those reasons that people throw out there when their portfolio is not working terribly well. Things are always the fault of either the Fed or of passive management. So some of that is kind of validish and some of it needs taking with a bit of a pinch of salt. But... One paper, like academic paper, that really caught my eye in recent weeks, published by the MBER, was basically saying that the researchers are sort of testing out this theory that passive investment makes stocks behave weirdly and stops individual stocks from being able to respond properly to news, which is like the whole point of the stock market, right, is that it rewards companies that are doing well and it punishes companies that are doing badly. And the research basically finds that it is indeed 
provable that stocks are bad at reflecting news that is pertinent to them if they are in a big index like the S&P 500. So to figure this out, they uh, look at currency shocks, at sort of big movements in the currency markets, and they figure out how, all things being equal, they should affect companies that derive lots of revenues from the countries where those currencies are. And they say that actually you find that if a company is in the S&P 500, which is the most heavily tracked index out there, it has a 60% lower sensitivity to FX shocks, to Mm. currency shocks. Now, they tested this to death. So they've looked at companies that moved in and out of the index. They also tried to control for things like, well, if you're a big company, you've probably got quite a sophisticated currency hedging program. So does that dull the kind of sensitivity or if you are a really big company that's big enough to be in the S&P 500, do you have lots of manufacturing, for example, abroad that means that you have natural currency hedges that dull the impact? And they found that even when you control for all of that stuff, the sensitivity is still diminished as a result of Mm. things being in this index. And that kind of opens up some pretty interesting questions around, as I say, the whole point of stock markets is that investors are supposed to be able to reward companies that do well and punish companies that do badly. What if that's not a thing anymore? Yeah. If you have a big chunk, perhaps more than half of the market buying stocks for a reason that is not, I believe in this stock, but rather it is on a list of stocks that S&P Dow Jones Indices told me I should own, <laughs> then yeah. you're going to react less to kind of incremental information. I think that's that's very intuitive in, in some ways. It, and it's good that academics are, are able to sort of demonstrate this. Yeah. It's an awkward place to be, though, just intellectually speaking, right, Katie? Because in good conscience, it's hard to tell most people like, you should actually pick stocks, like help help markets be more efficient, help enforce the efficient markets hypothesis by you personally allocating your money to to active funds because we know mm. they pick they a winner, right? Pick a yeah, winner. Yeah. Everyone yeah. loves picking a winner. Right. You know, everyone loves kind of making their fortune. You know, buying Apple stock when it was worth you know tuppence halfpenny, and now look at my huge you know riches. And but yeah, this is exactly the conclusion that the paper comes to, which is that passive investment quotes appears to be undermining the official market's hypothesis. Yeah. Hmm. So as you say, it's quite a big sort of philosophical point because if you, you know, and I don't kind of want to get all kind of, you know, super philosophical here, but if you get to the point where even more of the market is eaten up with passive investment, then what does the index tell you? Does it tell you how corporate America is performing or does it tell you how much money is in the market? And at a certain point, it's just got to be an index of, how much money is in the market. <laughs> and that's a weird place to be. I, I think to sort of add to the maybe icky feeling and, and sort of the complicated situation here, Katie, it, it's that you know we talk on the show seemingly nonstop about the mag seven, right? The big seven tech stocks, maybe at this point minus Tesla, so maybe it's six, at the top of the yeah. index that drive all the stock market gains. If you're buying the S&P 500, you are like almost by definition, taking a huge, mega, super long position on like the fate of Microsoft and Google and Meta and so forth. Super, and, super, super long. You're like 28% exposed to right? these seven companies. Right. And best of luck with that, everybody. Yeah. So like your retirement fund like depends on how Satya Nadella runs Microsoft, right? And is there something weird or gross or unwise about basically buying in at huge elevated valuations for some of these very popular tech stocks, which are getting compared to the dot-com bubble right now, Mm. uh, is market exposure with highly concentrated markets really market exposure properly conceived of? 
Uh, is it problematic? Definitely, yes. Do I know what to do about it? No. I mean, there's, there is a kind of argument that... So there's this idea that all indices are like these kind of black box, passive collections of numbers. Human decisions go into what is in an index. Yeah. And I guess there is an, there is an argument that the S&P 500 index has gone wrong because you do have these gigantic companies sitting on the top of it that are just, they just suck in more and more and more money and they make it harder and harder for people to kind of make successful individual stock picks. And it means that people are, you know, on a market capitalization basis through that index, 28% exposed to these companies, which, by the way, are trading at a price earnings ratio of like, you know, a forward earn yeah. PE ratio of like 37 times compared to the S&P overall, which is 25 times, which is high enough, but 37, ye gods. So all of a sudden, it means that investors, you know, mom and pop investors and big institutional investors are all exposed to this really tiny clutch of companies, which, you know, the, the real joke here they all share really common risks around regulation and yeah. around China. And, you know, it's just not impossible to imagine a world in which this kind of goes horribly wrong. The flip side there is that actually investing in companies like Apple and Microsoft is about the closest as you will get to a safe haven in investment yeah. right now. Like These things are just unassailable. They are just rock solid. NVIDIA results... Tomorrow, Ooh, Ethan, are you excited? I'm, I'm, Ooh, very, I'm very excited. excited. I'm very excited. <laughs> There's a related question to me, which is if everyone is doing passive investing and supposedly that makes markets less efficient and like less sensitive to incremental information and, and uh, worse mm. at pricing it in, shouldn't that mean there are bigger pricing discrepancies between actual market prices and fundamentals for a smart active manager or a hedge fund to exploit Ethan, and make Ethan, money out of, Ethan. right? I'm, I'm, I'm charmed by this idea that fundamentals matter. <laughs> <laughs> like every year, you know, the kind of active management crew will say, this is the year that active yeah. management is going to shine and that fundamentals are really going to matter in stocks. And I'm like, uh-huh, cool. <laughs> How many times you know, have you heard, this, this is a year for alpha, not beta? <laughs> this is so a year for alpha. This is so the year for stock pickers. Mm, okay, then. It's also the year for UK stocks. Um, look, maybe, I don't know, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do know that this kind of rise of passive is, is giving rise to some quite weird patterns in markets. And it also means, yeah, first of all, you've got a massive exposure to the MAG7. Second of all, if you buy the S&P on a kind of index basis, you're buying an index that's pretty much at a record high. Yeah. Now, let's have a little argument about whether that matters because it feels icky. And, and you know, if you've got some cash sitting somewhere in a money market fund or in a deposit somewhere, you could think, do I really want to take them, that money out of that really safe place and put it into stocks that are trading at these sorts of levels? A little blog thing the other day from um, Duncan Lamont at Schroeder's, hello, Duncan, was saying that actually it's fine to buy stocks at the high. And if anything, they tend to perform somewhat better in the 12 months after a period where they've been at a record high than they do mm. when they haven't been at a record high. And although we get excited about all-time highs in, in stocks, they are at or around all-time highs in, in the US like roughly 30% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, maybe this is all fine. Maybe we're worrying about nothing and people are making lots of money and just trying to overcomplicate it for their own kind of reasons. But um, Yeah, I think it's probably right that passive investing represents 
the like best scalable equilibrium for most people, right? There, yep. You're always going to have stories about some strategy that works better than passive investing. And I mean, look at what the big hot strategies are now, right? It's you put your money with Citadel and they do some kind of insanely complicated multi-strategy options, hedging, blah, blah, blah. That does not scale beyond a, a relatively small pool of capital such that they have to prevent people from putting more money into Citadel because they yeah. can't scale it that far, right? I, and I think some, it is- sometimes these kind of clever, clever strategies deliver like massive returns and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Whereas at least, you know, if you're just sort of sticking to the stock market, yeah, you'll have some rubbish years. 2022 was rubbish, for example. Um, but chances are over the long term, you'll kind of be fine. So you know, there is a school of thought that actually, you know, these indices and passive investment, you know, yes, it feels like you're kind of following the crowd and just sort of doing what everyone else is doing. But actually, this is an incredibly sophisticated (laughs) and high class product that is exactly the same, whether if you're buying it, if you're like you, Ethan Wu, or you, institutional fund manager somewhere, it's the same. It's the same thing. It's an incredible democratization of the market that other private markets are now trying to kind of emulate like private equity, for example. And yeah, maybe we should stop worrying about it. But I do think we should also just be aware of the kind of philosophical and practical wrinkles that this whole thing can throw up. Because yeah, if it all goes wrong one day, we don't want that to be a huge surprise. Yep. The passive grumblers have a point, but what are we going to do about it? The grumblers are always going to grumble, Ethan. That's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the tagline for this podcast. Grumblers gonna grumble. Grumblers gonna grumble. (laughs) All right, Katie, we'll be back in just a moment with Long Short. Hey, listeners, we are doing a listener questions episode in the near future. If you've ever wanted to ask me, Katie, Rob, or any of the other Unhedged crew about what we think about markets, finance, or life, whatever, send it to us. Ethan.wu.wu at ft.com. What we want to maximize is not expected return. It's not expected wealth. It's some kind of risk-adjusted wealth or risk-adjusted return. And we all know that, but we have to be really careful that we don't fall into a trap of maximizing expected value or expected money or expected return. To hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, Subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. This is Long Short, that part of the show where we cheer things we love, grumble about things we hate. Katie, I am long RuneScape. You're long what now? (laughs) I'm long RuneScape. The legend, Louis Ashworth at Alphaville, has just written Mm. a monster of a post about RuneScape, the private equity-owned online massive role player game that taught millions of children including me how to do arbitrage trades what value chains are and how to get scammed on the internet uh, i need it, to read this i don't understand it at all <laughs> it's it's basically like a it's a video game that was really big in the 2000s and the 2010s and it has a pretty sophisticated economy and there were lots of you know little children with their grubby hands including you know 10 year old ethan wu Basically trading the bid-ask spread, you know, buying something a little below the market price, selling it a bit above the market price. And there were all these in-game mechanics that kind of taught you how to do that. They called it merching. And Louis has written uh, sort of a brilliant piece on the valuation of this company. And there's all these questions about, is the player base real or is it just bots and computers? But 
I'm Long RuneScape. What a great game. A classic. Influenced a generation of private equity uh, drones. So it's all RuneScape's fault, basically, is what you're saying. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. That's right. Katie, are you long or short something? I'm also long something. Sorry. Sorry. But I got back on my bike. Woo! Oh, wow. So I am long cycle commuting again. I haven't sat on my bike since October when I got knocked off it again. But I decided I'm just, I miss it too much and I've got back on my bike. And this is my last shot at this. If I don't, get knocked don't off say it, that. <laughs> if I get knocked off it again, that is it. I'm selling it. I am not, I am not cycling anymore. But I've done this for like 15 years and then I took like, I don't know, three months out and I just can't hack it. I need my bike. Listener sent in some delightfully kind and supportive emails when you first talked on the show about getting hit by it. What was it? A van? You got hit by a van? Yes, I got hit by a van. A lot of bike safety tips from from the listeners. I think they must have the... felt bad because I called it your hard landing, <laughs> which which yes, in hindsight was very... rather actually that, was that pretty, reminds that me that was rather mean. You, you were very mean to me <laughs> about I, being I apologize being smacked off my bike by by a van. Anyway, I'm back. Cycling is good. If I have any more accidents, that's it. It's over. All right. Well, Katie, we wish you safe travels now and indefinitely into the future. And listeners, we wish you safe travels. If you have bike route recommendations, let me know. Ethan.wwuft.com. All right, Katie, thanks for being here. We'll have you back next week. And listeners, we're back in your feet on Thursday with another episode of Unhedged. We'll catch you then. Unhedged is produced by Jake Harper and edited by Brian Erstadt. Our executive producer is Jacob Goldstein. We had additional help from Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Special thanks to Laura Clark, Alistair Mackey, Greta Cohn, and Natalie Sadler. FT Premium subscribers can get the Unhedged newsletter for free. A 30-day free trial is available to everyone else. Just go to ft.com slash unhedgedoffer. I'm Ethan Wu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>